Well, today, I want to speak especially to you students, you 20-somethings, you 30-somethings. I want all of you uh, to listen, but I want to uh, speak to those of you that are especially younger adults, because what I'm going to talk about today is as foreign to many of you as life on Mars. And I want to help you. I want to help you correct some of the press of our culture, some of the just natural press of our lives. And let me do it by raising a couple of questions. And one of the questions is, uh, why is it so hard for us to be satisfied and content? Whether we're 27 or, for that matter, 77. Why do family problems, friend problems, work problems practically paralyze us? Why do we struggle on the inside with envy and fear as much as we do? Why do we spend so much and give so little? When the parable of the Good Samaritan famously uh, tells us that to live a fully human life, a fully human life, we respond to, we don't walk by the overwhelming needs around us. Uh, why is it that we're so angry and so impatient? And when it comes to impatience, I'm at the top of the list. I, I, I've often thought, and here I'm going to be honest, you know, how is it that by God's grace, I survived the death of my first wife by faith, and yet when I'm in traffic or behind a slow driver, I'm like insane? In both situations, God is completely and totally sovereign. What is that that's going on inside of me 10 years down the road? Or, or, or this, why is it that Facebook, uh, Snapchat, you pick it, seems so real, so engaging, so necessary for us, but the living God who knows every hair on our head and who uh, uh, moved into our neighborhood in the person of his son, uh, Jesus Christ, seems so unreal, unengaging, uninteresting, unnecessary to us on a daily basis? How is that? Well, there's a lot of answers to those questions, but this morning I want to focus on one that is especially difficult, I think, for many of us who are young adults. And that is that we no longer believe in heaven. Oh, we may check the box, but heaven has practically zero impact on our lives, our daily lives. Functionally, we don't believe. Functionally, we're eternity amnesiacs. And we say believe, but, you know, in, in this, to make matters worse, in this Western culture that we now live in, this is a culture that is devoid, devoid of heaven forever. I mean, think about commercials. 
car commercials, truck commercials, phone commercials, hair product commercials. I mean, pick them. I'm, which commercial is ever going to at the end say, you know what? We want you to buy our product. This is a really good product. But in order to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart, you need heaven. You need Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven. No, uh, what all the commercials tell us is in order to satisfy the deepest longings of your, your heart, you need this truck. Or last night as we were watching the Clemson football game, uh, there was an Axe commercial on, you know, this fragrance, AXE? And, and the cool thing about Axe, according to the commercial, is not only will it satisfy the deepest longings of your heart, but it's going to satisfy the deepest longings of the heart of everybody in the opposite sex around you. So today... I want to conclude this series on this incredible, this godly, this great Old Testament prophet Jeremiah by showing you how central the hope of heaven was in his life, how it made him unshakable. Because I want Jeremiah to give you heaven back. Not theoretically, but functionally. I want Jeremiah to restore heaven to its rightful place in your heart. I want you to hear God's voice on this. And for those of you that are students, 20, 30-year-old, 40-year-olds, and on, I happen to believe, and I want you to hear me in this, this is a life and death matter. So turn with me uh, in Jeremiah to Jeremiah 33. It's page 792 in the Bible's in front of you. I would encourage you to grab a Bible. We'll put the verses up on the the screen, this is my favorite passage on heaven in Jeremiah. But while you're turning, I want you to understand that Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah is primarily a book about judgment, the judgment of God against Israel because Israel has rejected God. God always judges sin. That's one of the main points of the book of Jeremiah. But what's interesting is this judgment of Israel... And the 6th century B.C. Uh, points, to, points to the still coming final judgment of all humanity at the end of history as we know it. So the judgment here points to the judgment there. But judgment in Jeremiah and judgment in the Bible is not the final word. What's the final word? The final word is resurrection and restoration. If you know Jesus Christ, if you believe in Jesus Christ, this side of the cross, I mean, for the last 2,000 years, the final word is eternity in heaven with God. The grace that God offers us through his son, it's what the table pictures, it's what the table points to. It's this kiss that came to us in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, seven times in Jeremiah chapters 30 through 33, and we're looking at 33, God says, he promises to Israel, I will restore your fortunes. And while that certainly partially is fulfilled when Israel returns out of exile from Babylon, after 70 years of the Babylon 
captivity and settles back in Jerusalem in the 600s BC, or 500s rather, well that certainly is partially fulfilled then, and then also partially fulfilled certainly in the first coming of Jesus Christ and the salvation and the grace he offers, ultimately, ultimately it is fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. So today, what I want to do is I want to do three things. I want to look at what Jeremiah teaches us about heaven. Then I want to go to the book of Revelation and look what Revelation adds. And then I want to conclude by wrestling with this question, well, what does it mean for us today? And how, in a culture that is devoid of forever, can we bring forever right into the center of our lives? So let's pick it up in verse 14. Jeremiah 33, verse 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I fulfill the good promise I made uh, to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. Now the language here helps us to understand that the righteous branch isn't wood, it's a person. Actually, righteous branch is a messianic title. Isaiah uses it, Jeremiah uses it. It's always in reference to the Messiah, to G who we know to be Jesus Christ. Now, why branch? Well, the Hebrew word branch means sprout or shoot. So the idea is that new life in Jesus will emerge from the dead and defunct dynasty of David. Just like a shoot comes up from a dead tree. Or almost dead. <laughs> that Jesus, that, that Jesus will be just and righteous. Uh, right, notice uh, this language in verse 15 means that Jesus is the good king. And what is a good king, a good leader? Uh, the good king is the one whose people prosper. He will be just. He will do right. Now let's go on to the next verse. Here we shift from Jesus to Jerusalem. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it, that is Jerusalem, will be called the Lord our Righteousness sometimes the Lord our Savior. Now, wait a minute. How can a city be called the Lord our righteousness? Well, the answer is uh, because it's used figuratively here uh, to refer to the people that make up the city, the people who, because of their faith in Jesus Christ, because of giving themselves to God, are righteous. They're in heaven. And they have assumed the righteous identity of their righteous Savior. And therefore they have made Jerusalem the city of righteousness, the city of renown. Now notice what comes next, verse 17. For this is what the Lord says, David will never fail. Never fail. If you underline or circle words, man, underline, never fail. To have a man to sit on the throne of Israel. Nor will the Le Levitical priest, and here it is again, ever fail. To have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. 
Now the man, notice the, uh, uh, the word man is used in both 16 and, or 17 and 18, and it refers to Jesus. And in verse 17, it refers to Jesus as king. In verse 18, it refers to Jesus as the ultimate priest. Now the question is, how in the world do we know this refers to heaven? Well, look back at verse 16. Very interesting here. Jerusalem will notice dwell in safety. Now that's Jerusalem. The Jerusalem you and I know. And if there's been one city throughout history that hasn't dwelt in safety, it's Jerusalem. So this has to be a reference to heaven. In addition, beginning in verse 17, there is an emphasis on permanence. So we are told in verse 17, David will never fail to have one sit on the throne. And then in verse 18, uh, 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 there will never fail to be a little Levitical priest who will stand before God. And then if you skip down to verses 20 and 21, what we discover is that these covenant promises about the Davidic king, about the Levitical priest, are as unbreakable as currently day, the cycle of day and night are unbreakable. So all this to say that here in Jeremiah 33, just like in Jeremiah chapter 1, Jeremiah chapter 3, Jeremiah chapter 23, uh, other passages, what we have here is a reference to heaven. Ultimate fulfillment in heaven. Jesus is the ultimate king. Jesus is the ultimate priest who will reign in heaven forever and ever. Now, let me shift gears on you because I want to talk about our current culture, our progressive secularism, and I want you to look at this quote. Man is free only if he owes his existence to himself. Philosophy makes no secret of it. Prometheus, now Prometheus was a Greek god who fell out of favor with other gods. Prometheus' admission, I hate all gods, is its own admission, its own motto against all gods, heavenly and earthly, who do not acknowledge the consciousness of man as a supreme divinity. Now look who wrote this. Karl Marx. Now the, the reason I put this up here is because this isn't just communism. This is our Western democratic culture, secular culture today. Uh, what is the secularism of our culture? Well, it's this. The beginning, the middle, and the end of religion is man. It's Karl Marx. Now, the point is either Jeremiah is right or Karl Marx is right. They can't be both right. And you and I have to choose. But what we know is that unequivocally, Jeremiah tells us that Jesus Christ is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And that heaven is real and Jesus will reign forever. So who do you believe? Jeremiah or Marx? Now let me go on. Let me move from Jeremiah uh, to the book of Revelation, because in chapters 21 and 22, where we're going, so turn to chapter 21. Uh, we have in those two chapters at the end of the Bible the most complete description of heaven 
anywhere in the Bible. And I want to make a, a couple of comments, but let's begin by reading Revelation 21, and let's start in verse 1. Um, how many of you like Handel's Messiah? Okay, there's two of you. Uh, what we're about to read is overwhelming, if you think about it. It's like Handel's Messiah times a million. So follow this. The Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, this vision God gave John, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. This is a Bible describing our future. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. So there's a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. But Jerusalem was coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. <clears throat> he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order. The old order of things has passed away. Now what I want you to note uh, <clears throat> for starters here is that the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem is a physical, material, tangible place. This notion we have of heaven being where we like little, those little fat angels playing harps on clouds, just kind of floating along, couldn't be that, that, that imagery couldn't be further from the truth. Heaven is a physical, material place. And what we are told here is that just like the Garden of Eden was a gift, heaven is a physical gift, like Eden was a physical gift, a physical gift of God's grace. The new Jerusalem's coming down out of heaven. It comes from God. Like all God's gifts, it comes from heaven, it comes from God. The second thing I want to say is, at the center uh, uh, of the heavens, the new heavens and the new earth, is this garden city of Jerusalem which is here called the New Jerusalem. Now the Bible, when you cobble together other passages, tells us that if you know Jesus Christ, when you die, and when you are in heaven, you will have a resurrected body. And your resurrected body is to your current body what an incredible oak tree is to an acorn. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. So you'll have this incredible resurrected body, uh, material but immaterial. You will live in the resurrected earth, dwelling in the resurrected Jerusalem, where there will be walls and gates and streets. So let me go on, and let's pick it up now in verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, what was Jerusalem like? 
Well, it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance, its, its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall, a great high wall, with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Then skip down to verse 21. The 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. And over the last 10 decades, or last decades, I should say, not necessarily 10, what have jewelers been able to do? Well, they've been able to make gold translucent. You can see through it. And that's the street here. It's just incredible. So we'll have these resurrected bodies in a resurrected earth dwelling in a resurrected Jerusalem that's got walls, it's got gates, it's got streets. As a matter of fact, in the next paragraph, if I continued reading, we discovered that the dimensions of the new Jerusalem are just um, enormous. Uh, the city is 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles long, and in a way we can't understand, it's 1,400 miles high. High. Its walls are a couple hundred feet thick. And so in this new resurrected Jerusalem, we will enjoy resurrected relationships in a resurrected culture and experience resurrected food, resurrected rivers, resurrected trees, uh, resurrected travel, resurrected um, work, recreation, and worship all in the presence of the resurrected Son of God, Jesus Christ. And your concern, I say this because your concern and my concern that heaven is going to be boring and so we don't want to really think about it um, because it's like these little angel guys couldn't be further from the truth. Heaven is the doorway, the doorway to where your dreams, your desire for adventure, your desire for joy will just expand forever and ever and ever. I mean, another way to think about it is heaven is the ultimate wedding reception. It's the ultimate birthday party. It's the ultimate musical. It's the ultimate stadium event. It's the ultimate convocation uh, at times thousands and thousands. The day you die will be the best day of your life. Now, you young adults, hear me in this. Because if you get this, it changes your values for life. The day you die is not going to be the worst day of your life. It's going to be the best day of your life if you know Jesus Christ. Because on the other side is heaven. Uh, but there's more. I want to line this out a little more. Uh, because Jerusalem is on the one hand a city, but on the other hand it's, it's a garden. It's an incomparable city and an incomparable garden. So turn to chapter 22 and let's look at verses 1 and 2. 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the, the middle of the great street of the city, the street of gold. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Millions and millions of people. That means millions and millions of leaves and lots and lots and lots of trees. So in other words, what will this new Jerusalem be? It will somehow be this perfect balance uh, uh, of the excitement, uh, the robustness, the density, and by density I mean the uh, uh, people living close together, or people, a lot of people, think downtown Chicago, the, the density and the diversity, all the nations. On the one hand, it'll be all that, the excitement of the city, the uh, we know from our best experiences in this city. It will be this unbelievable city. But on the other hand, it's going to be a garden. Rivers, trees, and more. And so, in ways we can't understand, there will be space, lots of space. There will be incredible nature. There will be incredible peace. It's this garden city, chapter 21, chapter 22. And let me go on. There's one other thing we see here that is, is frankly hard to get our mind around. Uh, the New Jerusalem will be the universal center of culture and commerce for all the nations. Now there's a little verse in chapter 21 that we need to pay attention to. Look at verse 24. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. What? Uh, now, the splendor the kings are bringing in to Jerusalem isn't a reference to their dress. It's a reference to the most glorious, sophisticated, beautiful products of their cultures. This is actually what Isaiah 60 prophesied. Isaiah is more detailed in chapter 60, and, and he talks about the nations coming into Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, and, and bringing minerals and jewels and timber and uh, um, animals and ships and on and on. And so we could add music and art and technology and more. But the point I want to make in light of 21-24, is that this new Jerusalem is going to be the universal hub, the center, where nations and economies do not lose their identity. They do not lose their diversity, but instead celebrate them. Celebrate the best of their cultures. So our work, our, our currencies uh, will be different, but they will all be otherworldly. And you will never be bored for a single nanosecond in heaven. As a matter of fact, it's safe to say, if you don't think about heaven, it's because you don't understand it. If you believe in Jesus Christ, the day you die will be, will be the best day of your life. And I long for you young adults to get this. 
for all of you to get this. You see, you will, um, let me just get specific, you will have chocolate in heaven that will be so good it will make you want to cry, but there's no more tears. You will experience uh, relationships and acceptance and love and, and intimacy uh, that, uh, that will take your breath away, but there's no more breath. Look how Randy Alcorn puts it in his marvelous book on heaven. If you want to read more about this, I would suggest his book. What should we expect to find on the new earth? Tables, chairs, cabinets, wagons, machinery, transportation, sports equipment, and much more. It is a narrow view of both God and humans to imagine that God can be pleased and glorified uh, with a trumpet, but not a desk, a computer, a baseball bat, golf club, picket. Will there be new inventions, refinements of old inventions? Why not? We'll live in a resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth. The God who gave people creativity surely won't take it back, will he? The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. When God gave Eden to Adam and Eve, he expected them to develop it. He'll give us the new earth and expect the same of us. But this time we'll succeed. There will, this time no human accomplishment, cultural masterpiece, technological achievement will be marred by sin and death. All will fully serve God's purposes and bring him glory. The day you die is going to be the best day of your life. Now let me land this and uh, wrestle for a couple minutes with this issue. Okay, what does this mean for us today in, in, in a culture that is devoid of forever? Where even in the church, frankly, thinking about heaven is, is something maybe grandparents used to do. And here I'm getting at how we respond to these why questions at the beginning. I'm getting at what does the next life mean for this life? And let me say a couple of things. For starters, it means we must shift from a destin now follow me, a destination mentality to a preparation mentality, from viewing this life as destination to this life as preparation. This life is not our final home. If you know Jesus. Yet most of us, what do most of us do? Well, we try to uh, pack all the excitement, all the romance, all the happiness, all the pleasure we can into this life. And if it doesn't happen, you know what? Uh, we get discouraged. So maybe you're single and you, you want to get married, but you're not married, or, or, or you're divorced, or you're widowed, or you're struggling with a health issue, or somebody in your family is, or you've lost your job, or you're, man, you're, you're pressed down because of your finances. And how do you feel? Well, well frankly, often we feel gypped. We feel sidelined, worthless. Uh, we look around and we feel like, oh, well, they're fine, but man, life is passing me by. But the problem is this mentality of this life as our final destination is contrary to what God tells us in his word. Because God's intent for you in this life is not, is not, is not your happiness, it's your holiness. 
And so he uses problems, he uses challenges, he uses setbacks to make you like him and to prepare you for heaven. The second thing living in light of heaven does for us is it clarifies hope. It gives us hope. Hope is as central to the human experience as oxygen is. We all consciously or unconsciously are searching for hope all of the time. And our greatest joys and our deepest sorrows are all ultimately connected to hope. But the problem for most of us is that things we hope in will disappoint us. Why? Because if they're not connected to heaven, they're going to die. They're going to wither. They're going to fade. I think as a pastor, the Perhaps the most difficult, maybe the most difficult thing I do is step in, get called into marriages that are on their final legs, uh, that are circling the drain. Everybody's mad, everybody's overwhelmed, everybody's ready to explode, everybody's miserable. Now, Rhonda and I lost our first spouses to cancer, and so we get loss. But I got to tell you, my experience is that divorce, especially an ugly divorce, is far worse than death. It's one of the reasons Rhonda and I are on the uh, Family Life Ministries Step Family National Board. Because step family life is hard. And it's especially hard for uh, a spouse or couples who are coming out of ugly, painful, messy divorces. And the problems linger and linger and linger. That's why in a couple weeks we're going to their national conference. We're going to be speaking with one of our daughters, by the way, on a, a, a panel for step families, kind of navigating the terrain. Divorce is so painful, and it's so common in second and third marriages. Now, what does this have to do with hope? What does this have to do with happiness? Well, why is divorce so painful? It's so painful... (laughs) because it shatters hope at the most intimate level of life. It crushes it. And ironically, I would say about 100% of the situations I have seen, I have been involved in, along the way, at least one of the spouses fixated on earth and not on heaven. And it killed the marriage. You see, unless hope, your hope, I mean daily, your hope is tied to heaven. It will die. And you will shrivel. And I'm not blowing preacher smoke, okay? Uh, Actually, 
I'm pleading with you before you, you make a huge life-altering mistake, whatever it is, to reset and recalibrate to heaven. I do not want you to waste your life. Uh, think of a child who presses his face against a window to look outside. We see our grandkids do this all the time when uh, the, they're at our house. Their face is pressed up against, you know, they smash their nose, they're pulling the window apart, uh, and they look outside. Like that child, press your face toward heaven. Think about it, read about it, study it. Read Alcorn's book on heaven. Why? Because what it does, because it's right, but also uh, because functionally it, it produces a patience, a compassion, an ability to forgive, an ability to, to live out of biblical values, not secular values, that you cannot, you cannot do on your own. So look at how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So what do we do? Well, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now the last thing I want to say, and then I'll be done, is that heaven will be real. And heaven will be central to the extent that Jesus is the center of your life. Heaven will be central when Jesus is the center. Uh, we have life problems because we have a heaven problem. We have a heaven problem because we have a Jesus problem. We just ignore him. So I like these verses in 22. Look at 22 and uh, verses 3 and 4. Just two little verses. Notice, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. And his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Now over and over in other places in Revelation, we are told that right at the center of heaven is Jesus. And over and over in the book of Revelation, we are told that, uh, or Jesus is called, I should say, the Lamb, like he is here. Now, why the lamb? Because it's a figure of speech. For Jesus' death on the cross, dying in our place for our sins, that we might find forgiveness. It, it, drawing on the imagery of the Old Testament sacrificial lamb. In other words, Jesus went to the cross to receive the condemnation, the punishment, the wrath that we deserve so that when we believe, like I said at the uh, table, uh, we will receive the righteousness, eternal life, and acceptance that Jesus deserves. Jesus takes our sin and we get his righteousness. That's the point of the cross. That's why over and over Jesus is called the Lamb. And if Jesus, as the Lamb, is at the center of heaven then Jesus, as the Lamb of God, must be, must be at the center of our lives. And frankly, that's why Jesus gave us the table. And so if you've never done so, come to Jesus. Say yes to him. He loves you so much he died for you.
But if you've done that, whether you were 7 or 27, the most important thing you can do with your life is continually cling to Jesus, bask in his grace and his mercy. Because in seeing Jesus, you recalibrate and you will live. You will live for heaven. Let's pray. God, would you give us the grace to trust you, to turn to you, to believe in you? Will you give us the grace to live before you? Will you give us the grace to live in submission to you? Will you help us to see Jesus and to know his kiss? In his name, amen.